We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. It's a real pleasure to have Mike O'Reilly on the show. Mike was an FCC commissioner from 2013 to 2020. He has extensive congressional experience and deep insight into the industry and policy that we're going to look at, including the outcomes of the World Radio Conference, Spectrum Policy, and what the FCC is up to in general. This is a real Washington insider. So, Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for doing this. We got a lot of ground to cover, and I'm grateful that you're willing to to come on. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. As many of you know, I'm Mike O'Reilly. I run a small consulting firm here in the Washington, D.C. area. But my background is in communications policy. I spent seven years as an FCC commissioner and 20 years on Capitol Hill as a staffer on these particular issues. So happy to chat this morning. Great. Yeah. And of course, a long time on the Hill. So uh, a true Hill veteran. Mainly Senate, right? You started out in the House, but then you went to the Senate. Well, a little split, uh, 11 in the Senate and and nine in the House. So kind of down the middle a little bit. Let's start talking about spectrum and spectrum management. What do you think the state of play is? Where do you where do you think we are as a country? Well, things are uh, admittedly messy. Let's not kid ourselves. Spectrum auction authority has expired. We do know that uh, the commercial wireless industry is going to need more spectrum. And that means we're going to have to either become more efficient with what the bands are used for today. And in addition, we're going to have to shrink the footprint of the federal government's holdings uh, as we go forward. And so that process has been going on for quite a long while. And now we're getting to the difficult stuff. All the easy stuff's been done. The middle stuff's been done. Now we're in the hard to hard cases of trying to figure out how to shrink the footprint of the federal government. And then in the efficiency side, we're trying to find every band and see, is it being used as efficiently as possible? Can we make it more efficient? Can we add new entrants into into a particular band? And and I've got a couple of ideas along those lines. Why don't you tell us what the ideas are, and then we can come back and talk sure. about the overall process. Well, I've been a big advocate of what's been known as 12 gigahertz. It is be, being underused today for a lowly service that, that's mostly non-operational, a one-way, low-trajectory service that really doesn't meet the needs of anybody. And what I've suggested is we can expand the use of that for new purposes, including I suggested for mobile mobile services. The commission, my old institution, said, you know, we're not really comfortable with mobile services. We have people, we have uh, other entities in that band that could, this could cause interference. And they said, maybe we need a fixed wireless. And I'm all for that. I think 12 gigahertz could really be opened up for fixed wireless without any problem because you have a known entity, you know where the existing incumbents are, you can map them out, you can address them to make sure that there's not a problem with anyone and we can get more purpose out of a band. The commission has uh, has, has somewhat gone in that direction. They've looked at adding 13 to that, 13 gigahertz. So you'd have this big chunk of 12 and 13 together to get you a whole, you know, 1050 megahertz of spectrum all together for new wireless purposes. Look at that. There are different considerations for 13 gigahertz. Some people like it. Some people don't. It hasn't been my charge. But if the commission decides that it's something that it can't move forward on, I'd hope that they would move forward expeditiously on 12 gigahertz. Certainly 13's got, you know, a number of people that are that are critiquing that. And, and we'll see where that lies uh, going forward. 
What do you think the odds are of getting auction authority renewed? Uh, that strikes me as a major impediment. Well, it can be. For 12 gigahertz, it's not as big a deal because you don't necessarily have to do an auction. You can consider it. I, I certainly have been a, a proponent of auctions in, in mm. my career. I yeah. support and have for the longest time auction authority. I, I renewed it a couple of times when I, you know, on behalf of, <laughs> you know, with my former bosses on Capitol Hill. So I'm a big proponent of auction authority and think it should be renewed. The likelihood of it moving forward, you know, someone said, what do you think of the first quarter? I, go, oh, I don't know about that. There's a lot of bigger things that Congress is considering right now. But um, I think by the end of this year, you can see some type of package. The harder part, you can't game out, is what happens in an election year. What happens mm-hmm. when you're talking about a presidential election? People say, oh, push it off till 25, or we got to wait till a new Congress. That, that's a harder thing I can't adjust. In somewhere in the summer, things start to get a little squirrely in D.C. That's natural, and we all know it, so we can plan a little bit ahead of it. So I, I'm hopeful that we'll get auction authority before that. I think it can happen. There are some differences of opinion that can be worked through, certainly. What do you think the big obstacles are now for spectrum management? I mean, when I, I stopped doing this for all, because I thought everything's fixed, it's going well, and then perhaps it's not going as well as it was, say, <laughs> 10 years ago. What do you think? Yeah, then the wheels fell off, right? No, you, you, you're right. It was going very, you know, fairly well. And I worked really hard at the commission to bring new bands forward. What, what's happening is that the wireless is just so popular. And the consumers mm. love the mobility that comes with it, the optionality that they can get from the services. So it's really exciting time to be a consumer. But that puts more pressure on every frequency band that's out there, every frequency, actually. How do we make it more efficient? How do we use it? For more purposes, and and that's been the difficulty. How do you how do you deal with the fact that everything pretty much pretty? I want to be fair because we have been able to expand the top part of the mm-hmm. spectrum band and go into new bands, but but generally all the really popular bands are already allocated to specific purposes, and you either got to take from somebody or you got to have somebody give it away and give it up. And you, you, in my work on C band, is a situation where the satellite companies were willing to trade for financial gain, give in frequency. That's not common. I mean, after the C-band play, I'm not sure it's exactly going to be popular. You know, they certainly the satellite guys got a little short change, I think, going forward. And that was problematic. But C-band itself and the transition has turned out wonderful and better than my expectations. And I'm so proud to have pushed that going forward in my last days of the commission. That's one reason I like auction authorities. It seemed like a pretty straightforward deal. You give up spectrum and you get money in exchange. And it would be good yeah. to get that back. But you haven't met, mentioned the magic words 5G. How does 5G fit into this? Well, look, at 5G is being deployed today. You know, A number of use cases are really popular. Certainly in the industrialized side of the equation, it's working really the business side of the equation. It's working well and being developed and, and deployed in a, on a constant basis. There are consumer unit uses that are expanding and the added speed and capacity and all the benefits that come from it are being used by consumers. I think the carriers are trying to figure out how do they monetize? How can you make more money off it without charging more rates? Is there a way to to try and figure that out? It hasn't been incredibly profitable if you look at all the wireless companies, you know, financial treatment and how, how the market has treated them. So there are some challenges along those lines. And at the same time, we're heading towards 6G. That train is not stopping, you know, around 2030, give or take, the standards or the initial standards for 20 for 6G will be initialized, started in first phase. And so we're, we're in that window of how do you migrate from, you know, to a fully blown 5G, 5G advanced, and then into 6G. 
But we do know is that consumers love mobility and they're going to want more. And we as, as a nation and as a, as, as, as a you know, technologist have to try and figure out how to make that happen. The elephant in the room on spectrum allocation has been DOD because they have a lot of the good spectrum. You know, when they started using it, there wasn't that demand. I mean, this was, we're talking 50 years ago in some cases. What would you do about that? Because they've, it's torqued the spectrum management. It used to be FCC and NTIA, and now DOD is at least as influential, if not more, than either of those agencies. Yeah, I think that they, they've always been influential in the NTIA process. They, you know, they have a big foot and a big say in, in that matter. That's somewhat problematic from my viewpoint. You can't get in and challenge a lot of the decisions that they make on Spectrum or some of the objections they have. They, they, they cloak up behind a number of uh, you know, national security mm. and classified treatments. So you can't get into understanding some of those things to make some some wise decisions. And politicians on Capitol Hill aren't as steeped always in the inspector in policy. They certainly want to be protective of national security. I did when I helped you know advise members in Congress and certainly when I was at the FCC. I didn't want to shortchange our national security. But we do know that DOD has the biggest footprint in the United States. No other nation has anything close to the allocation. And that's why it's easy for internationally for, for the rest of the world to coalesce around something that isn't, you know, a DOD, because DOD in the United States is in, in a lot of the bands that are really popular these days. And, and you're right. And, you know, 50 years ago, these bands weren't popular. When I started working on Spectrum, two gigahertz was 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 like a limit of the upper part of the equation. And now we're in, well, I talked about 12 gigahertz and how important that could be in bringing forward into the marketplace. But we're, you know, high as 24 in terms of mobility and, and the high bands. There's certain things, you know, higher than that, 40 uh, 47 that we have certainly touched upon and we'll go higher 70 80 90 so there are bands that dod was once in or is in now that no longer make any sense and what we need to do is shrink their footprint and that is not a popular thing to say because they don't want to move but we've been trying to figure out how do we convince them to move how do we pay them to move how do we make it financially incentive for them to move how do we address those issues and we can do that sometimes it requires breaking some eggs and i did that you know when i was at the fcc mm -hmm. it wasn't always popular it does come with political costs and and you, you use a lot of a lot of goodwill up to to make some you know but we are able to work you know think of 3.45 mm -hmm. That was something right. that the DOD did not want to give up. And we worked really hard over a long time. And I beat on the drum and, and pushed all the buttons I possibly could. And we were able to make it work. And, and another 100 megahertz for 5G spectrum came forward along those. So yeah. that's, that's what can happen. We're having fights in lower 3 gigahertz. We're going to have fights in, at 7 and 8. We're going to have fights we know right now, given where DOD is and what we've already had fights in the past. You mentioned international, and we've more or less just concluded the WRC. Did you get a read out of that? That's, I get mixed reviews. I think mixed reviews is the right analysis. I think that there are certainly some inefficiencies or some problems with the WRC process. I think that how they operate, I've, I've been a critic of that in the past. I think the things are some things that we can work to improve going forward. We have a, a universe in WRC where Russia, Iran, China, 
and France are the most dominating countries. Is that really who the United States wants to listen to and decide spectrum policy when we're in a global war with a lot of those companies, both economically and, and some would say in a, in a national security zone? And then separately, we have to fix the, the American approach to WRC. We kind of run into it in the last couple of months as we get, we know where the city's going to be, but we run into it. We just, you know, barely appoint an ambassador and then we jump into the discussions. Most other countries have an ambassador and work on these issues for decades. And in some instances, they're like a permanent ambassador and work on these issues for multiple works. The United States needs to improve that process so we have a better, longer sustaining ambassador process and negotiator going forward. So we have more credibility, more gravitas when we sit down at those tables. No disrespect to what happened in WRC in Dubai. I don't, the circumstances were very unique with Anna Gomez getting appointed and, and confirmed as a commissioner in the middle of the process. But that was, you know, foreseen. People were expecting mm-hmm. it to happen and we should have fixed that process ahead of time. Yeah, Steve Lang did a great job and it was amazing how little lead time he had to prepare. So <laughs> That's that's a, a systemic problem. But one of the topics at WRC that I know you're interested in was uh, satellites and space use. And so that's for I'll just be frank for a long time. I did satellite policy for a long time and I stopped because it was boring. You know, it goes up, it goes around, it comes down. Big deal. But that's changed. What's changed in the space and satellite part of this equation? I like your analysis, right? Because it goes up and goes down because that's really, you know, the same thing here. I worked on satellite policy 25 years ago and then it got into this lull. And now in the last, probably like last 10 years, we've seen the development, really development. It's been out there for a while, but really the development of LEOs, low earth orbiting satellite systems, mm-hmm. the, the SpaceX, what's coming on, on par for, for Kuiper and a number of different, OneWeb and a number of different technologies where you can have broadband internet satellite. And, and you can have that uh, and really functionality that's really high. The costs are much lower. The constellations are much bigger. So you have to deal with more, some more um, interactions and interference issues, but you can work through some of those things. And we can deal with the fact that low earth LEOs are really taking off and it doesn't mean the geos are going to be ignored or any of the work that they've done, but we do have to update our rules and respect the fact that the LEOs are really going to be how we do broadband going forward. It's not as much about the, the longstanding geo broadband offering because of technology, because of what you can do at different orbiting positions. And so it's been really exciting to see, and it can you know fill in, LEOs can fill in, not only fill in what's unserved today, but also serve mass markets. And capacity will increase, speeds will increase, everything's going to get better over time. And they're now interacting with mobile carriers to try and provide a, a seamless system to betting where you are on the earth. You can always be covered, which could be good and could be bad, depending on your, your viewpoint of, of private, you know, how much connectivity you want. Um, there's sometimes you want to be lost intentionally, but, <laughs> but, but separate from that, there really is some developments in space are really exciting. And what's been capable in the last number of years that we saw, you know, dozens of applications at the commission when I was there for new satellite services. And that's really exciting to see what's going to be brought forward for consumers. Yeah, I was talking to one of the big handset manufacturers and they're they're planning on a, a handset that will have the ability to just connect seamlessly. And it doesn't you as the consumer won't know, you know, is it is it wireless? Is it 5G? Is it space? You're, is it Wi-Fi? You're not going to know. And I've heard. Chairwoman Rosenworcel actually say that they were entering the era of ubiquitous connectivity. What's that going to do for the business? How will that change things? Well, I absolutely agree with my former colleague and friend. I think she's right. It's going to be 
you know, it doesn't matter what service, or what platform you're on, doesn't matter what frequency you're on, doesn't matter what the technology is, and the consumer doesn't care. They just want it to work. They want connectivity when they want. People talk about, you know, problems with fixed wireless, and they say, as long as it works for the consumer, they're not, they don't care as much that they have to put up a little antenna on their window. They can work through that issue. Uh, we can work through the technology side of the equation, and they just want connectivity. It doesn't have to be a particular form or fashion. So, Going forward, it's something that's going to be always on, and it's going to make it easier for consumers. For the business side, it's going to be more partnerships more uh, prevalent, right? You're going to have companies try and figure out how they can be partners with everybody, so they or they're going to get into each other's business, which they have already as best they can. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's easier to partner than it is to develop your own service, and in some instances, it's better to to do it yourself. So we're going to see new innovative offerings going forward, and that that ability to jump, you know, no matter where you are, is just going to find the easiest and and best connection, I'll, I'll put it the word connection, for the consumer is, is really exciting for connectivity and what the benefits that the, the internet brings and, and broadband brings forward. You haven't used the word enterprise yet, and that's the one I hear a lot for 5G. So is that going to be, that'll be a different market than the consumer market. Some of the companies thinks that's where the money, thinks that's where the money will be. So What's your view yeah, on that? I, I talked about the industrialization a little early bit about 5G and the business case. Actually, you know, enter, enterprise fits that, that universe. We are seeing that being deployed. That is kind of one of the big cases right now for 5G use cases. And so I'm excited on where that's going. I think that's probably one of the lead, one of the top two for 5G today, and the fixed wireless being the other. Um, and so I think that that is exciting. And I think that you're right. It is a, it is the a, a opportunity to monetize that portion of the service, it is going to bring new opportunities for enterprise that they hadn't thought of before. It's going to make it cheaper to offer new mm. innovative uh, things within the factory, within the work zone, within the field, within the business setting. And so really an opportunity to bring wireless to a whole new level within the enterprise universe. One of the things that's puzzled me is if you look at uh, spectrum allocation in the U.S., we have a lot going to government use particularly in the sort of mid-band, a lot to government, um, not as much as you might think for commercial license use, but we have a ton. We're actually the world leader, I think, in Wi-Fi, unlicensed spectrum use. Why is that? <laughs> well, we, we, you know, the the unlicensed category, we've been trying to figure out how do we increase both licensed and unlicensed. When I was at the commission, I helped bring forward six gigahertz, bring forward a whole band for unlicensed, which had been shrinking, or at least, you know, had been facing capacity constraints at 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. They had been running out of space. And the option was, how do we bring, you know, new landscape for them to be able to innovate? Some of the most unique and, and, and beneficial services we have today come off the unlicensed side. And let's face it, the licensed guys use unlicensed and the unlicensed guys use licensed most times. So the, the universes are, are shrinking or the, the they're not as much competing as they are coming together o- over time. And so it's not a one or the other. It's kind of a both. And so we made available new spectrum at, at six gigahertz for unlicensed use. That's beneficial for everybody going forward. New use cases are just coming on online. So we have a portfolio there. That doesn't mean we don't need more licensed spectrum, which we absolutely do. And we're trying to work through those as a nation. The NTIA has, the Department of Commerce has a spectrum strategy. There's some good parts to it. There's some parts that are that are probably, you know, we've done some of those pieces before. Mm-hmm. So they got some work to do. 
Um, they're talking about implementation soon. The sooner the better, but there's still more. It needs to be looked at more comprehensively and more expansive. And that means, in my opinion, you've got to shake the trees at DOD. You've really got to push the envelope. And we've got to shrink our military footprint with new technologies so we don't undercut our national security. I was going to ask you about this strategy. I was kidding some of the authors of it that in Washington, when you say you're going to study something, it usually means you, the, you know what it means. What do you think of the strategy? What would you what would you get out of it that you liked? Well, look, and I, uh, you know, some of the strategy is looking at things that they have done before with a new mm -hmm. eye. And I think that's helpful because I think some of the past strategies or past studies probably weren't as open as we would have liked and didn't have as much information to the public we probably could have used. But I'm not sure where, you know, the big, everyone wants to talk about lower three gigahertz as being the prize here. I'm not sure where that's going to land. I got friends on both sides. I'm not sure the right landing spot on some of those things. But I do think a spectrum strategy that adds really tackles the big growth of wireless. It's not about 200 or 1,000. It's about 5,000. You know, it's about 1,000 in, in, in mid-band. You know, I've called for a certain amount. We really need to expand the needs and the technology going forward. And so I, I don't mind, and I don't have a big problem with looking at some of this. Some people use the word study. I don't have a problem with that. We study things at WRC. That's part of the job. And so we're going to study some of the things that as part of the spectrum strategy, great. We're going to do some testing, absolutely needed, but we really have to have a vision. And I think that this part, this, this strategy fits into that, but I really want it to be bigger. It needs to be more expanded. It really needs to push the envelope at the end of the day, whether it be this administration or the next, we really have to have this very massive expansion because that's what's happening internationally. Internationally, they're not trying to figure out how do they do one particular band. They're talking about the what is the next 30 years. And I don't want to get an industrial policy overall, but that's what spectrum policy is. It really is yeah. laying out the groundwork for what the private sector can do once we make some of these decisions. The United States has been a leader in high bands, really pushed the envelope in getting new high frequency to the marketplace. Great. Absolutely going to be used. They're not as used. They're not popular today. They will be. Uh, we absolutely know that. But it's, it's going to take a little bit of time. The market's going to have to be more receptive, more understanding financially. But I, but to your point, I absolutely think that this strategy can work. It's not as forward as I would like, but I think that studying things is great. And we just got to see where they, they decide on some of the things that have already been talked about. But we really need to move forward on some of the bigger ticket items and the really massive universe of how do we you know open up wide swaths of spectrum, not just little tiny pieces. How do you think we stack up compared to, say, the Chinese? I mean, that's one of the ones you get sometimes is the very different system, not a lot of appeal in the Chinese system, but where do we stack up? And they, some people say, I don't know if this is true. Some people say they did quite well out of the last WRC. Well, it doesn't surprise me they did well at WRC. I was making the case two WRCs before yeah. that China was in a position to, con you know, they, they led WRC just four years ago. So it is not a surprise that they have the relationships and they've been spending gobs of money to mm. actually have influence both at WRC and other standard setting bodies for this exact purpose. I obviously have big problems with industrial policy. My background supports the, the free market approach to spectrum and free enterprise. So I have a big problem with how the, the China goes about doing things and how they, you know, it's easy to make spectrum policy when only one guy gets to make the decision, right? And everyone gets to salute it. That's not how the U.S. market works. We have a unique structure 
that requires a lot of cooperation. And that can happen, has worked successfully. I do think at the end of the day, the United States is in a best position to succeed in wireless going forward and all the benefits that it brings. But the, you know, the, let's not undercut the Chinese and what they're able to do and the gobs of money they're throwing at problems. And they're trying, not only is it about particular bands that they like, like they haven't been big fans of unlicensed. And it's not about the one technology of the other, even though there's benefits to their own suppliers. It's also about control of the network. They don't you don't get as much control of unlicensed network as you do a wireless licensed network. Let's let's acknowledge that if they have one provider in, in a Huawei that's providing equipment, then they can get the answers they want and they can control the populations in, in ways that they want to do. We have more rights and we have more freedoms in the United States. And, that, and that's to be complimented and applauded. We shouldn't move towards their direction because they're having some success internationally or domestically in terms of wireless offerings going forward. And and whether their visions work in the short term, long term, the United States is going to do very well. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think it's a great point, though, that control is always part of the equation for the Chinese. We haven't talked about technological change. You brought up 6G. You haven't said the magic word spectrum sharing, which I believed in maybe a decade ago. I don't think I believe in that anymore. What do you think about spectrum sharing? Well, I, I think the spectrum <laughs> sharing has been going on for a long time, right? It, the unlicensed is spectrum sharing. I think we're talking about direct to consumer from satellite and the partnerships that they're talking about with, with wireless carriers, domestic terrest- terrestrial uh, offerings. That is sharing. We do sharing every day. It's sharing in 3.45. It's, it's sharing in 5 gigahertz. There's a lot of opportunity that happens already. Now, you're talking some of the advanced sharing uh, you know, mm-hmm. platforms that people have been talking about for quite a while. I worked on you know, CBRS, where I, I, my teeth are, are bar- you know, buried into the decision on, on CBRS and the benefits that it brought forward. And then that kind of sharing mechanism, it works. It is a definite tool in a toolbox. It's not the solution for everything, but it's definitely a benefit and definitely a solution where you can't move, a, you know, existing incumbents. And you try to figure out how do you maneuver around them? And the, the technology, when databases and the sensors and all the things that come with a CBRS model or CBS-like model um, can be replicated in other bands. And so I'm a big fan of that. I think that the spectrum sharing is going to be inevitable in some bands. It's not the solution for everything. Everyone's like, no, we're going to go to spectrum sharing across. No, we're not going to spectrum. We still need licensed spectrum. We still need bands that are dedicated just for unlicensed. But in the middle is where spectrum sharing is really going to happen. It's finding those difficult cases and then learning from our mistakes. There's, you know, whether you want to, I don't want to say mistakes, but learning from our experiences, you know, things on power limits, about zones, about, you know, the technologies and the benefits, all the experiences from CBRS are really shaping the next one as we go forward. So you're a CBRS fan. You think it's a yeah, I think CBRS, I think CBRS, I'm a fan of CBRS because absent the technology and what's been used in that band, it would be unused. DOD has sensitive radar on the coasts that would mm-hmm. not be operational for most of the populations of America. If you let if you unless without this technology, without spectrum sharing in the particular band we're talking about, there would no be no commercial offering. And that commercial offering today is expanding. It's not as broad as everyone would have liked at day one, but it is really increasing. That doesn't mean you take this model and apply it everywhere, but it really it really is working here. And it's not something you could undo because even if you were to say, no, we're going to try and license this out, DOD's like we have radars to protect the United States on the coast hosts. We're not going to turn those off. And so you all where the people live, which happens to be on the coast of America, there'll be no service. There's not a lot of money to be made 
just in the middle. And that no disrespect for those states that live there, but, you know, that's just not enough money to make a you know, nationwide offering. And CBRS today, the licenses I think we got right, we, we moved from really micro-sized licenses to medium-sized licenses. The terms we got better, we went from like a one-year or a three-year to a 10-year term. And you're seeing both the wireless network being stood up by licensees, also the industrial case being built. So I'm, I'm a fan of what's happened in CBRS because you had no other choice. This is the, the, uh, the alternative to nothing in my mind. And what's being you know offered is great. That model can be offered in other places, can be replicated probably with some, some changes and tweaks. It's not gonna solve everything and it's not to be applied everywhere. Like I said, we're still gonna need licensed bands. We're still gonna need unlicensed bands and we do need to make more commercial spectrum available. Right now, I think if you ask some of the people in the administration, they'd say that the process is a little gridlocked what would you do to change that? What process fixes would you recommend? And how would you get out of gridlock? Well, look, and I'm not in government anymore. And I, and I had a lot of ideas and I put a lot of them forward. It, it does require leadership from the executive branch. And it does require an acknowledgement that NTIA is the premier by statute spectrum manager for the federal government spectrum. That's not how it's been treated. Certainly in the last 20 years, it's been an afterthought. It's been a the agencies run over NTIA. That's not acceptable. We're not, that, that is not an, op- an opportunity to get to resolution. Even when NTIA would say positive things about a particular band, then the agency would run, run around that decision and go to Capitol Hill and find its particular friends. Mm-hmm. I think I think of what happened in the C-band and the FAA. And so yeah. we have to figure out how to empower NTIA or something in, in the federal government, in the executive branch, so you have some kind of decision maker that actually when their decision is made, it actually is be able to be held. And then we, you know, we let the engineers deal with it. The FCC worked when I was there. The, the Office of Engineering and Technology works really hard. Sometimes they're a little more conservative than I would like, but they do are able to work through some of the problems and solve some of the difficult interference issues to be able to bring new innovative technologies forward. And that's what you want. There are fixes to NTA I would certainly make if I still had a pen on Capitol Hill or if I still had my voice at the FCC. But uh, but I think that you know part of it is that the biggest issue is being empowered. How do you get NTA actually when a decision is made that it's either respected or that the agencies that disagree have no other option but to salute? And, and that's not happening today. And that's what, what didn't happen when I was at the commission and why we had to move forward in a number of cases. The difficulty is we're not really often fighting about a particular band that DOD might be in. We're fighting about a band that might be two bands away or neighboring band that, that the federal agency is has concerns about. What happens in, we don't like to make spectrum analogies that relate to land, but it, it's the same similar argument that what happens when a neighborhood starts to uplift itself, when the economy lifts up and you start to see development in a particular area. Those people who bought it previously had certain expectations, but the world has changed and now they don't want to change their expectations. And you're, you're like, there might have been a park or there may have been a field that was unused but it was owned by somebody and now we're going to make it useful. And, and, and the existing incumbents are like, oh no, we can't do that. We expected that to be free forever because it added my Vista. It allowed me to do certain things that, that my license didn't. My license didn't protect me from those things as a federal government user. And we have to change that, that expectation. You don't get rights to other bands just because you're who you are. Yeah, NTIA making it more authoritative I don't quite know how to do that. I mean, I, the FAA 5G story I thought was funny because it showed that apparently the laws of physics are different everywhere else in the world. 
which is, you know, like a newsflash, but do you think it's even, so we've been talking about strengthening NTIA for a while. And I used to laugh when they put in things that they were advisor to the president on spectrum. It's like, no, come on, be serious. What would you do to make NTIA a little more powerful in this space? Well, look, and I think there's some statutory changes that would work. I think there's internal operational structural changes that the that NTIA can make as if approved by this administration. It doesn't seem to be that that's where the administration's this administration. If you bring up the FAA situation, for instance, the the, the top of the, this this administration supported FAA even though it didn't make any logical sense. It wasn't backed up by facts or by data or anything else. It was, you know, that they, they they bought into the scare tactics of an agency who had been plagued with so many other problems and still can't seem to get its own shop in order, but is somehow a master of spectrum policy. And so I got difficulty with that. I think you can fix those things. It does require leadership. It does require some changes in the statute. And they're not easily done. Let's not kid ourselves. It's not easy to legislate these days, mm. but it can be done over time. You can work through those issues. You need to really show some leadership, both in, in the executive branch and in Congress, to be able to move the, past the, the current fights. And, and the, the arguments that I've heard from people is, well, no, we're just going to work better together. That doesn't solve NTA's <clears throat> problem. It's not about uh, h- how we can hug each other more often. It's about making, you know, making it clear who gets to make a decision. Is decision made based on science? Is it made based on data and fact? And if it is, well, then you just have to acknowledge that and move on. You can't just complain after the fact because it makes your life a little bit more difficult or you have to move bands or you deploy new technology in the case of DOD. In the FAA's case, I mean, they were complaining on a band that was not an FAA, it was not an FAA band. The altimeter issue was a commercial band that the FCC had licensed um, for technologies. And we can certainly have changed it. We, you know, the funny part is if you think about the, the, the all the money that went into change altimeters, we didn't really upgrade the spectrum needs for altimeters. We didn't deploy new altimeters that shrank their footprint to respect the fact that we don't need altimeters to have a broad range. We just shrunk the, you know, the concerning area. And so we really haven't moved forward uh, as much as we should have. And the idea that it's just about more cooperation among agencies, well, you get what you, you ask for. If you ask everyone to, to 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 sit around a table and chat about a bunch of things, you're not going to get very far. Sometimes it requires leadership. And I'm no longer in government, so I respect those that are at the table trying to make that happen. Yeah, I talked to a squadron commander in one of the armed services who said that uh, they got a notice, one of those notice to airmen saying, report if you have interference problems with your altimeter. And all his pilots reported interference problems. And he pointed out to them, unfortunately, they were flying over an area where 5G hadn't yet been deployed. So there's a little bit of a, I'm not quite sure how to fix that. And part of it might be lack of attention and more senior levels. It's easy to scare the public, right? It's easy to say, oh my goodness, a plane, and God forbid, and I certainly wouldn't want anything to happen, but to say that a plane might fall out of the sky in a very populated area on the coast of the East Coast Mm -hmm. of America, that's going to crashing into Washington, D.C., in the Dulles or Reagan Airport. That that really is, I don't, I never would want that to happen. But the hyperbole is easy to, to spread and to get people to buy into that narrative and to write stories about it. And we've got to move past that universe and move into a more coordinated science-based, factual-based relations. I've been careful not to bring up the phrase net neutrality because I know you have views on it, but we probably we probably need to bring it up. I, I used to be neutral on net neutrality, but it's like, in, so I think this is your point. We've 
gotten along just fine without it for a long time, and I'm not sure what the, but maybe you should tell us rather than me. I have not been neutral on net neutrality. I'm a big fan <laughs> of technology neutrality, but not net neutrality. The policies and the principles of it have changed over time. If you think back when I started working on the issue, what the concerns were, they've morphed as people have new concerns. They've they sold something to the public on what it really was, which was inaccurate. And the experiences, as you highlighted, we've been without net neutrality for a number of years in our history, and the world moves forward just fine. The market is working wonderfully without it, and the restraints from it will be very problematic for providers. It, it undercuts the, the, the free flow of capital. The market doesn't like it and has actually constrained the build out of networks because of it. We saw that last time it was imposed by Tom Wheeler, the markets shrunk and it's likely to happen again. And that's a problem if you expect providers to build out and to expand net services to more consumers. So that it is a problem. The policies also don't make any sense in my, in my opinion. Sure, no one wants any blocking or throttling, but they always come with reasonable network management, which is absolutely expected. And so you've kind of undercut your purpose. And then I certainly have a, a problem and have articulated a ban on paid prioritization is a real problem because it bleeds into things. It sounds pretty on its face, but when you actually you know delve into it, it actually could be the elimination of my mind and certainly of, of some active enforcement bureau activity uh, at the FCC. It could be the end of network slicing. And network slicing is incredibly beneficial mm -hmm. for both the, the enterprise side. We talked about the consumer side. Really innovative services are going to happen because of network slicing. And it's happening today globally. And we're just getting on par for it in the United States. And if we cut it off with net neutrality, uh, that will be detrimental to the future. I remember when net neutrality was imposed by Tom Wheeler, I went internationally. I went to a couple of conferences. I said, don't do this globally. Don't adopt the United States approach. It's wrong. A couple of years later, the United States changes its mind. I vote to get rid of net neutrality. I go again internationally. And the same people are looking at me going, what happened? You got rid of it. We stuck ourselves with it. It's killing our networks. It's killing our growth. We can't handle all the problems we're facing. And I go, I tried to tell you, I don't know more. I couldn't have, I couldn't have warned you anymore. And you still went forward with a bad plan. That's what we're facing right now. It's become more about orthodoxy or religion from a particular side than the other. The facts are telling us that this doesn't make any sense and that these policy constrictions will harm the companies and providers and eventually consumers in the long run. The uncertainty that comes from a potential enforcement action is really problematic. You know, the, the die is cast. It is what it is. You couldn't be on the FCC and be a Democratic commissioner without endorsing net neutrality. And so we're going to get it for some time period. We'll see what the courts say about it. Right. You brought up the international side, and I know the Europeans are interested in charging the big streaming services because they. it sounds to me like a problem a market could solve. But that the only thing gives me pause about saying ability to charge for different levels of services. If the Europeans are doing it, we ought to look carefully. Absolutely. Let's acknowledge what the Europeans and what the South Koreans have been trying to do. It's not about fairness and build out of network costs. It's about the fact that most of the tech companies, the high tech mm -hmm. companies that employ millions of Americans, they happen to be located here. And they don't have anything that even comes remotely close for the application layer. They have barely... You know, they have almost a, a minutesimal amount of, of, of application yeah. level. So it's all about American 
companies and how do they get their hands into and their hands in the pocketbooks of American companies because they want to use that money for many different purposes. Europe is overtaxed, overregulated, and they get what they deserve. Their networks are burdened and problematic and can advance. The United States is burgeoning with broadband in almost everywhere. Let's acknowledge there's places that we're, we have to bring service to. But the, the capabilities during the pandemic were extraordinary. It allowed people to work from home, live from home, or you know survive at home during COVID. And so uh, that, that to me, the, 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 that is about how do you power grab and how do you squeeze American companies? I think it's harmful to be allowed, and it shouldn't be supported by U.S policymakers in my mind. So I understand the idea of costs and spreading the cost of trying to figure that out. But to have a government mandate that you that you charge a consumer and you charge the, the, the one you carry is really problematic in my mind. The negative benefits will come from that. But that doesn't mean that I support USF reform, you know, if we want to get it, get really into the weeds, that I support USF reform that includes taxing broadband services. I think that's a terrible idea. We want everyone to have broadband and the idea is, well, let's tax them and they use that money to then help build it. It's backwards. So I, I favor an ap- approach that's based on appropriation. This is a federal government policy and those decisions are being, you know, federal government mandate should be paid for by the federal government. And I was in the federal government as a staffer. I think you can work through those issues on the cost. Costs are really tough these days. Let's not kid ourselves. Mm. You know, we have a $35 trillion budget debt. Mm. And, and so we have problem, you know, deficits running at $1.5 a year. Very problematic. But the solution can't be just like push it on to the private sector to do bad policy in my mind. So what do you think the telecom agenda is for the next couple of years? And put it, leave aside, no matter who wins the election, What's the telecom agenda? What should we be looking at? What do we need to do? What's what's on your list? Look, and I'm I'm supportive. You know, there's a lot of different things. We certainly have to address the spectrum issue, which we started this conversation with. Mm. We really have to work through those issues. We have to bring new bands to market for both the unlicensed side and the licensed side. We have to bring mm. spectrum available for both sides of the equation, and we have to bring a big portion of spectrum, 500 megahertz, available for licensed spectrum. Really, really, you know champion our wireless uh, license spectrum. We do both and, and make sure that they're taken care of. So spectrum's really high on the list. Part of that is, of course, auction authority. We have mm-hmm. to really get forward on, on allocation reform. But then you shift to other topics. We have to stop doing bad things like net neutrality and th- these diversity efforts and discrimination efforts, which are really going to be problematic down the road. They're really harmful and, and we're really open up the door to uncertainty. So you have to move away from bad policies. We have to reform a lot of technologies have been, you know, have been changed because of the marketplace. You think of what, what's happening on the wireless side, but think about what's mm. happening on the wireline side. Think about what's happening on the broadcasting side and on the cable side. A lot of those technologies are being wiped away by what's available online and what's available on the internet. You think of all the streamers and the availability of what they're bringing. We talked about the cost part, but think about how we should change the current regulatory model for those guys. And so I really think there's a lot of work. And then we talked about, I touched upon this a little bit. USF reform needs to be done. There's a lot of problems with the current model, with the current system. I was there to try to bring attention to it, try to demand we fix certain things. And I couldn't really get a lot of traction. I was able to reform parts of it, things like rate of return. I'm really proud of what I was able to do, mm-hmm. but I only scratched the surface of what was what's needed. We need fundamental reform of universal service. We have to fix the distribution side of the equation, and that's not happening today. So there's a lot of pieces to be done, a lot of good work. If we got 50% of what I just said or 30%, that would be a really good year. Yeah, that's a good way to put it is 
usually say to people, identify your top 10 things and then hope you get four of them. Yes. Did we miss anything? Anything, final words you want to add? My final words would say that I, I think that this year has an opportunity to bring new bands forward. 12 gigahertz is high in my list. But I think it's it's really about working through what we already know. The agenda is probably not too dissimilar, no matter who wins the election going forward. We've got work to do. Let's hope we can we can solve some problems. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.